So welcome everyone. And the first talk today is called the ABC of data science. It's not the alphabet, but it's three different types of data science roles, analyst, builder, and consultant. And we have a special guest today, Danny Ma. I am a really big fan of Danny's work. So I try to listen every time he appears somewhere. I try to listen to this, if, whether it's a podcast episode or stream or whatever. I am a big fan and uh, you, Danny, um, are a big source of inspiration for me personally, and I'm super happy to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us today, Danny. Thank you so much for having me, Alexi. This is amazing. Yes. Can't wait to, to talk about the ABCs of <laughs> data science and maybe yeah. a bit more as well. But before we do that, before we start, I would like to ask uh, you about your background. And the first thing I want to ask is, uh, Probably anyone who follows you on LinkedIn knows that, that you're a meme generating machine. Like you're like, I don't know, every time I open my LinkedIn feed, I see a meme from you and it's awesome. And I want to know, like, how do you get inspiration for them? It must be difficult to, to create so many, so many memes. Like how do you do that? So I think the, the inspiration for my memes mostly come from things that I've experienced in, in real life. So whether it's uh, or someone doing some dodgy practices with the data science or they're looking to try and trick some management by telling them something or whatever it is. Like I try and draw on my own experiences to uh, po poke a little bit of fun because everyone knows the, the funniest memes are always based on truth. Hmm. So usually I just need to think about things that I've done in the past or I've seen people do incorrectly for the, for the data science and things just come to my brain. So you must have seen quite a few things that people did incorrectly. I believe so. <laughs> That's not uh, not uh, something that everyone has experienced. Uh, yeah, and uh, like I don't know if you came here because you saw uh, a post from Danny. You probably saw the video that he made, and this made this video. I still cannot unsee this video. So I will uh, I will include link in the comments, but. Uh, yeah, be careful. Once you, you look at this, this image will stay in your head. So it will not go away for a couple of days, believe me. So how did you learn to do these things? So this is not like an average data scientist, uh, uh, not something that an average data scientist can do. Yeah, so my, I'd call it creative video editing, but I've always, I think I spent too much time on social media just consuming <laughs> lots of different content so i've got a I've, i feel that i've developed a strong intuition for what is interesting or at least what is different and then i just try and do the video editing to make it happen i think i'm still very junior when it comes to video editing i have a friend who actually works for the australian broadcasting company and he always tells me oh i should give you some lessons on how to edit properly <laughs> i have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> but this is uh, this is amazing, and of course, like the the topic was uh, this is Amstrad, right? So this is like uh, pretty much mm. on uh, on topic to our discussion today. And uh, yeah, maybe uh, like on a more serious note, uh, uh, maybe you can tell us about your uh, like apart from this, the most useful skills uh, you have that we already talked about. Uh, would be quite interesting to know what was your career journey so far. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that. 
Definitely. So um, hi, everyone, for joining the show. Uh, my name is Danny Ma. I am, I would call myself a recovering data scientist after having, I've spent probably the past five years or so working in data science. Um, but I actually started off my career working in data analytics, um, specifically in campaign analytics. So um, I was the one in the background trying to identify which customers to send different emails based off their shopping behavior. Um, I did that for two years. It was my first job out of university. For university, I took an undergrad in commerce, um, majoring in actuarial studies. So the, it's sort of like the maths and the statistics behind the insurance models and the financial models uh, and also business economics. Um, however, I don't think I actually remember much at all from my university days. So I learned almost everything on the job um, instead of when I was at university, too busy partying or doing something crazy. <laughs> so um, yeah, straight after university, I, I actually, as part of my university, I, I managed to get a few internships as part of my program working for insurance companies. So this was in the, in the actuarial department where they would essentially have lots of crazy Excel. They used to use a lot of SAS, so statistical analysis software um, to do some of the, it's more like reserving modeling and trying to model all the claims and the different things like that within the insurance world. Um, they didn't let me anywhere near it. So it's not like I learned very much when I was <laughs> doing my internships. But I, I got exposure to some of the data stuff there. Um, but I re also realized that I didn't want to work within the insurance space. I wanted to do something a little bit different, uh, maybe like a non-traditional use of data. And that drew me towards my first role outside of university, which was with Quantium, uh, a data consulting firm within Australia. That was where I did the campaign analytics and retail analytics as well. So uh, think of uh, consumer packaged goods, uh, and the different things like that that you can buy in a supermarket. So I did that for two years. Um, I kind of stagnated a little bit and I wanted to find a more challenging thing to do. So around, I would say, I can't remember what year it was, but around, I know, let's say an, a year and a half into my role there, I started waking up every morning at 5 a.m. in the morning to learn Python. Before then, I had very little programming experience. Um, I dabbled with a little bit of R when I was what at university. Use, uh, what did you use uh, to, as an analyst, like SQL? Uh... Oh, yeah, most of it was SQL, Excel. Um, mm -hmm. I used SAS again because that was the only thing they, they gave us mm -hmm. in that company at the time. Um, so I was automating a lot of SQL jobs um, through whatever tools I could get my hands on. But looking back, my SQL code back then was very, very bad. Like it, it must have been very like not optimized at all because I had no idea what I was doing. So after, I think after I spent my time learning a bit of Python and um, I asked some of my mentors, okay, what do I, what do I do? I, I don't feel like doing this campaign stuff much longer. So they told me, oh, you should do data science. And yeah, back then it? I had no idea. I had no idea what data science was. So I had Googled data science and kind of, fell, I, I wouldn't say I fell in love with it straight away because I didn't know what it was. And I actually started using Kaggle, uh -huh. trying to do different things. I did almost every mistake that every new data scientist would, would, have, would have made on their career and their journey. Um, and then I managed to actually applied for a few data science roles, even though I didn't have any experience, um, got rejected for all of them. 
And then I eventually um, made it into a role with the bank. So one of Australia's largest banks within the digital area. So I was doing more along the same lines of what I was doing before, but in a different space. So think of all the, the campaign targeting and looking at the different f click funnels and different mm -hmm. things like that on their website. So same thing, um, but this time with Python, right? Mm. Oh, this time I, I tried no. using Python, but it was not very good. <laughs> so SQL again? Mostly SQL. Okay. But the, the thing that helped me bridge into the data science world was um, we actually had an opportunity to apply data science to some of the problems within that digital space. So one of my first few projects, I actually got to work hand in hand with the data science team. And after that project, I got absorbed into the data science team. So that was around when I became a data scientist by title only. Which, year, which I, year was it? Oh, it must have been 2016, I think. Okay. 2016, so, sounds about right. Uh, it's still around that time when companies had no clue what data science is, right? I think so. I think it, it had, things haven't really changed much. In, yes, in, exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, after I, so I moved into the data science team and I started working on more traditional machine learning projects. So think of all like the customer propensity modeling, um, looking at time series forecasting. We actually did a lot of experimentation as well. So things about, it was more, it was still within the campaign and the marketing space, but it was much more rigorous in terms of how you would actually run the experiments and how you examine the results with all the statistical testing and everything up front as well. So the target control groups, but with more rigor. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then towards the end of my three years in the data science team at the bank, I started working more on data assets. So it was more of a exploratory data role, but I would also be implementing the final um, data products that we were using across the different teams. So one of my big things was to try and capture all the different customer interactions around the bank. So imagine someone takes out some money at an ATM, they use their card to pay for a coffee down the road. Um, then they make a complaint on the website because something happened with their transaction. I'd be able to track all of that at a customer level and kind of make draw it on a timeline so people can start analyzing the journeys. But we were also using all of those events essentially to create massive feature sets and machine learning training data. So we're using that quite often. Um, and then soon after I built that product, I got an opportunity to do the same thing, but back at the retailer, but this time doing it on the cloud and doing it with more digital data sources. So think of like Google, Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram, mm -hmm. um, all of those different things, as well as their, all their shopping data and whatever they had, whatever else they had at a customer level. So we got to build that in GCP. Um, and there was, it was a really great project because it was quite challenging. And then the team used that data to build multi-touch, multi-channel digital attribution models. Um, but yeah, my, my last projects were around that space where it was all about combining data, um, automating machine learning pipelines um, and doing everything on the cloud essentially. So you basically went, uh, like we will talk about these ABCs a bit later, but you kind of captured at least two of them, mm. right? And well, A and B, but yeah, maybe let's uh, take a bit yeah. like a step back and uh, talk. A, like I, I do have a couple of questions about your career journey, but maybe we will uh, 
go back to, to that a bit later. And I already see questions in Slider, so we will also get back oh, to great. them. Uh, but we, we first will talk about like these different uh, types of data scientists, and then we will cover questions. So, uh, so the topic today is the ABC of data science, right? So what are these ABCs? Like uh, each letter is a, is a role. Yeah, and I'm also curious, um, like how, like was it you who came up with this idea? And if yes, like how did it happen? Mm, so there's a really famous article written by, I forgot the exact name of the person, but I think they were working in the data science team in Airbnb where they defined like there's two types of data scientists. There's a type A who is the analyst type and a type B who is the building type. Uh -huh. um, last year when I was doing my live streams on YouTube as well, I added an extra element of a type C where it's sort of like a combination of both, but uh -huh. usually more, more within the management realm. So I think the A and the B, they were already there. I just kind of took them and uh -huh. talked about it a little bit deeper. And then I added the C. I don't uh -huh. think, I haven't seen other people talk about the C lens of it yet, but We'll see. Someone, someone might claim it, and then I'll just. Oh, it's, it's yours. No, it's not mine. <laughs> but you can say, okay, I was actually first. Like here is my video. <laughs> yeah, but let's let's talk about this A and and B and C. What what are those? Okay, so when we think of type A, A stands for analyst. B stands for builder. So traditionally, when we think of the analyst type, we think of um, it was similar to the experience which I had when I came in doing a lot of data analysis, being able to look at insights, do data visualization, make some dashboards and try and figure out what's going on with the data. Um, that's a very large component of data science because we can't really be doing machine learning if we don't know exactly what the problem is that we're solving. So a lot of the upfront work and the investment of time and energy for many of the projects will be definitely done on analyzing data and making sure that we're solving the right problem. So the analyzing type is usually going to come from that data analytics background, maybe with the statistics background um, and very research heavy as well. So um, you might have you might have seen some of the articles where um, a lot of it was about the origins of the first few data scientists that ever appeared in I think mostly most of them were in Silicon Valley. And this was like the first first time that the term was actually being used was because they brought on PhDs, ex-PhDs, ex-researchers from like from all the powerful universities like MIT, Stanford, et cetera. And they put them into their teams in LinkedIn, Facebook, and Google. And they were there to essentially do research and try and try to figure out exactly where they should invest in money or how they can use the data to build a new product that will help the customer experience. So you ended up getting things like the Facebook knowledge graph, the LinkedIn network graph. And I think like Google PageRank was like one of the original like large scale machine learning products as well. So I think that when we think of the analyst type, they, they were that type of people who were the ones who had to figure out what they were doing and analyze a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So they come from a very heavy research mm -hmm. background. So just to, to somehow summarize, so the, as I understood, so first, uh, first thing is data science type A is not necessarily a data analyst. So this is a slightly different role, right? And then the second thing I heard is like the first data scientist ever who appeared, they were of this type, right? And then the other types kind of followed after that. And uh, 
Um, yeah, so what kind of uh, background they usually have? Like we mentioned like PhD. So these are people who, who are doing research. Um, is it the only type of background they have or there are mm. some other backgrounds? I would say that the originals, they were mostly coming from that really strong technical pedigree of having all the training, doing a lot of research and writing quite a lot of code, essentially. Um, I think over time, uh, because the companies realized that these people were really rare and most of them were very happy to continue doing research instead of moving into the industry, um, I felt, or a lot of the other people who were working with data originally, so your traditional analysts, your quants, um, maybe some of the database people as well, they started converging onto this role of data scientist. And because most of them came from that analytical background and they were very good with the data, it made perfect sense for them to kind of slot in and start picking up some of the other skills that those advanced PhD researcher types were already using. So this could have been like your, your Python, your R, all those different languages, which were which are additional on top of the traditional uh, data analyst skill set of using your your SQL, Excel, Tableau, mm. what have you, data visualization tools. So I think it was most of the background of the people. I think their their actual study background didn't matter so much. It was more about their work experience. Um, of course, you still have people who are doing technical degrees, like the computer science degrees and um, statistics and mathematical degrees that would also slot into the A type, but they kind of blend in with the B type as well, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll cover really soon also. Yes. Um, so what I heard, the skills are what uh, the skills they need, the, the, the type A data scientist, they need uh, first to have uh, um, to know how to program uh, a bit, like uh, use this Python R, um, have a bit of theoretical background, like know the theory, uh, and usually like often these are people who, who were originally coming from these big universities, uh, famous universities. Um, so they need to know like, uh, I guess, like theory of machine learning. They know need to know how to experiment, need to know statistics, um, like how to design an experiment, things like mm. this. Is there something else that they also need to know? I think that the analyst types would also have to present a lot of their insights mm -hmm. to the business. Um, so this also ties in with the type C data scientist who kind of specializes in doing that communication piece. But for a lot of the time when you're doing a lot of analysis, even as a data analyst, you're expected to present back your findings to the business to try and drive some sort of commercial decision or to drive some direction in, in the project. So I definitely think communication is also very important. Um, but I think, yeah, to round out the skill sets for the type A data scientist, most of it is it's essentially a data analyst plus additional bits and pieces that come from research background, a little bit of programming and maybe more emphasis on the communication than before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, like analysts are already quite good at this uh, storytelling, like uh, visualization. They just need to add uh, a bit of uh, coding on top of that. And if they don't know theory, they also need to mm. uh, perhaps study more statistics because usually data analysts already know about a, a bit of statistics. They just mm. need to learn a bit more, right? And then, um, then also learn a bit of machine learning, right? Mm. Is, this how, this, is this how the learning path uh, 
like let's say we have a typical data analyst who knows how to um, write SQL queries, who knows how to create dashboards, who knows how to um, do nice data visualization, and they want to become this type A uh, data scientist. How the learning path for them will look like? So I can talk about this quite well because that was exactly my path. So <laughs> I, when I started my journey into data science, I could build like do the SQL very badly, do the do the Excel, um, do the dashboarding, do a little bit of R, but I had no idea what the other skills were. So a lot of my journey was essentially just trying to figure out what I should learn. Um, once I had that direction, uh, when I started working with people who were in a data science role, who had data science experiments or experience, um, and they could guide me on what I should be learning, that was when I saw my own growth and development really like just pick up like a hockey stick. So um, definitely, I felt that before I had that sort of guidance, I was just kind of fumbling around in the dark, reading a lot of different articles and kind of being stretched everywhere. So you hear like, oh, you need to understand all the theory before you even start doing any programming. And then someone else would say, no, you just go implement the machine learning things and then you pick up the theory. So that's I feel that, I <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say as well. Just go and try a few things. And when you need to learn the theory, you'll know when you need to learn the theory because you have no idea what's going on. So I think that was, that was the same advice given to me mm -hmm. also. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I would say for anyone who's currently in a data analyst role or um, doing work, which is not even in analytics, but you're managing databases or you're um I wouldn't say a software developer that comes into the, the other, into the type B, but for anyone who's working with data and they're doing things and visualizing and whatever, um, there's definitely a path into data science. You just have to be curious and keep working on it and uh, work with good, strong mentors who can give you that level of guidance to push you in the right direction. Yeah. So that's, uh, so I'm just trying to like, how can we formalize this being curious, right? So you can just uh, like, let's say you you are trying to put a learning plan and then you put Python there, you put machine learning theory there, you put uh, some other things. And then the last point is, okay, I have to be curious. And then, so how can, can somebody, you know, uh, become curious or this is something intrinsic that you cannot control? Mm, it's, a, it's a great question. <laughs> I think for, there's always going to be a spectrum of curiosity. So a lot of people just need to know what's going on to the, to the very nth degree. So I've, I've met people who they wanted to do data science. So they started learning Python, but then they wanted to figure out how the Python go, code got translated into some compiler and then got translated into binary code or something, something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably on the one end of the spectrum where you need to know everything, every single thing. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, people um, might just not want to know anything. They just want to accept orders um, and they don't take the initiative to kind of push themselves more. Like mm -hmm. these people, it's not a bad thing or anything. Like they just prioritize different things for their career mm -hmm. um, or in life in general. So um, like my, my parents are like that in some sense where they just, they're just not very curious about many things and they just, they do their nine to five and then they spend time with their family and that was enough for them. So I think it's very honorable, um, but everyone lies on the spectrum of curiosity. But the, the thing about curiosity is that you can literally just tell yourself, 
I want to be more curious. I, I want to know this more. So I think for anyone who um, wants to improve their curiosity and keep learning more different things, you literally just have to make the decision that you want to learn more things. Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as that. So I feel so, that, yeah, there's no need to really like formally define the curiosity. I think it's diff- going to be different for everyone, but everyone can do their own version of curiosity. Yeah, so the, the way I understood it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, let's say I'm working with uh, Python code, and maybe this is the other end of the spectrum you mentioned, and then I execute a line of code. And then it works, but I start wondering, okay, why it works? And then I start digging deep. Okay, like in scikit-learn, we do this dot uh, fit, what dot fit does, right? And then I go, okay, like I have no idea what this code does. Let me just learn some theory, like how logistic regression works, right? And then I learn that, I come back and see, okay, like how, what I just learned, how does it translate to code? And then trying to sort of unwrap this thing. Do they understand correctly? I think that would be on definitely One on the, the higher end of yeah. on of curiosity. Um, that was exactly how I did it as well. So um, the first time I was starting to use the machine learning packages, I actually read the underlying papers within the documentation. But I'm different to to, to many people as well. But I feel that many of my mentors did exactly the same thing and that's what they told me to do. So um, for anyone out there, like if you need to learn machine learning theory, there's no better place than to actually read the papers which which are implemented by scikit-learn, for example, mm-hmm. or LightGBM or, or XGBoost. The papers are all there as part of the documentation and it's an amazing resource. You can learn a lot just by reading through the math and trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, I think we're touching slightly the B type of uh, the data scientist because the, those are more, this is at least my understanding based on what I heard previously from you. Uh, uh, yeah, so maybe let's talk about uh, the, the B type, the builder. What do they do? Okay, so I think of the B type as they're essentially software engineers, software developers, just with a very focused realm of data science applications. So for example, um, if you're doing a lot of stuff in the cloud and you need to set up the infrastructure, um, manage all the workflows, work with the data engineering team to make sure all the pipelines are, are good and solid, maybe you force other members of your data science team to write very clean code so you can write unit tests and functional tests and different things to make sure that the code will run in production. Um, All of these things are hallmark traits of a type B data scientist. Um, Essentially, they're a software engineer, um, for lack of a better term. I think you can also think of these guys as the the new age machine learning engineers as well, um, where they're the ones building those systems and the machine learning ops and automated machine learning programs and different things like that. Um, I think one of the key differences between the building type and the analyst type is that the building type always wants to work in the production environment. Like there's almost like a different mindset where mm-hmm. the type A data scientists will, they're very happy to play around in Jupyter notebooks to just take data from wherever in a CSV file and just explore and see what's there and try to apply some machine learning to it straight away after you figure out what the problem is, of course. But the type B type um, data scientist doesn't really want to do that. They think of all of that stuff as kind of like a waste of time because they, they're going to have to refactor it or they're going to have to change it somehow. So it's almost everything 
like people always talk about like technical debt. Mm. There's like, there's a famous Google paper of the technical debt of machine learning systems. Um, maybe we'll try and find a link and throw it up somewhere, but that's a really good one written for type B data scientists, but it's always, I think it's a very good thing to be aware of um, even as you're starting in the field, because you can make really bad decisions upfront, which will cost you a lot of money. But if you haven't experienced it before, you will not know how much money it might potentially cost you in the future or cost your company in the future. So I um, took a note. Uh, I will add a, a link, uh, of course. Yeah, but uh, like to me, like you mentioned technical debt. So basically type A creates technical debt and type B fixes it, sort of. Almost. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that, so the, the perfect middle ground is where you have a type B data scientist doing the exploration. Mm -hmm. It would be amazing because they can kind of put in all the the rigor and the infrastructure from day one, and then you start exploring and testing models um, in production. Essentially, I think that was um, through my journey. I managed to get from being the crazy type A data scientist who had no idea what they were doing with the programming in the production environment to working in a production environment with engineers and software engineers and data engineers, and being forced to work how they work and seeing the light in a sense. That's why I call, I sometimes refer to myself as a recovering data scientist. Because once you, once you get exposure to the way things should be done in a very formal um, software engineering type space, you can't unsee it. Just like the video for my promotion of this talk as well. Um, these things are essentially threshold concepts where someone teaches you something, it's very hard to forget about the way that you now view the world. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of value in becoming a type B data scientist because um, when we think of value for machine learning, a lot of it is automated value. It shouldn't be um, someone has to put in 10 hours of work to get back X amount of dollars. It should be, okay, I built this software, I built this model. Um, it's going to continuously generate me additional revenue and because you're a good analyst, you'll be able to measure what your, your incremental value is as well from this model. Um, but if you are a type B data scientist as well, you can build and automate that whole system mm -hmm. and do the measurement for you. And that's, it gives you a bit more buying power as, a, as an employee as well. So I think it's really important to cover both skills. Mm -hmm. But uh, you mentioned that these kind of uh, profiles, they have a quite different mindset right so one is more exploratory and the, the other focuses more on production uh, but it's uh, you also mentioned that it's possible and you uh, you are a living proof that it's possible to go from type a to type b so how so how can uh, this uh, type a data scientist change their mindset and go to uh, type b because it must be quite difficult right you're you're used to playing with jupiter uh, like uh, executing cells in a different order and, uh, you know, uh, like uh, take a look at these kernels, right? So they are probably created by type A data scientists. So they have a lot of knowledge, right? But they don't necessarily have uh, this mindset and uh, these engineering skills. So how do we, they go from, uh, uh, you know, being researchers to being engineers? I feel that there's... Oh... There's at least two ways, two ways that I can talk about. So one way is um, as a type A data scientist, you get forced to work on a project in production. So you have no other choice. 
And for lack of a better word, you'll have your ass kicked absolutely by whatever's going on because your model won't run, your data is missing, something goes wrong, your the package that you are using doesn't exist on some server, things will go wrong and things That's will go wrong horribly bad. Yeah. So it's you're learning how to be a type B data scientist the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little bit of that experience, but I managed to work with people. Or I, at least I reached out to people who knew what they were doing and they told me what to do. Mm-hmm. So that was part of my experience at the bank when they didn't have many systems. So a lot of the systems we were building from scratch. So a lot of the auto machine learning, the deployment, um, like we were some of the first teams to put our models into Docker containers and deploy them somewhere and have like a Git version thing to actually control all the different model versions. So things like that, they sound very, or to some people now they sound very basic because we have all these crazy new ML ops things coming, coming in to do that for us. But back in the time, back in the day, we were, we were doing all, all of that manually. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Git, you mentioned Docker, you also mentioned uh, uh, cloud, and I think you used uh, Google Cloud, right? So what are the other things that uh, one need to learn to to transition from type A to type B in addition to these things? Mm. I think the most, or... the most important thing is probably um, being, again, like another cliche, like you have to be curious enough to actually improve your your programming skills. Because I feel that a lot of data scientists, because they're, they're using machine learning, they're writing a lot of Python code, it's very easy to, to almost trick yourself into thinking that you're a good software developer. I know for me, I did that all the time. I thought I was amazing <laughs> until I worked with people who were actually amazing. And then, so it's always about trying to find, like there's the saying, like if you're not the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room sort of thing. Um, which I don't always believe in, but I feel that there's always something to learn from other people. And if you can learn from the best people out there, that's, that's probably ideal. So you want to almost challenge yourself by always being outside of your comfort zone. The more you spend being the top dog or you're the one setting all the standards in the, in, in the team, for example, um, likely you're not learning as much as you, as you could if you had other people to learn from. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the major things for me was when I moved from team to team throughout my career, I, I just happened to be very lucky to be paired, paired up with someone who was amazing. So when I, was, when I first joined the bank, I was paired up with someone who was amazing at SQL. So I learned how to write SQL properly. And I, I, I still read back my code and I think to myself, what the hell is this? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I do that all the time as well. Like probably the code that I'm writing now in six months, I'll look back at it. I'll just won't know what's going on. Better not to look at it. <laughs> yeah, better not to look, I think. <laughs> but the, I would say, so Git is definitely very important skill. Um, even for type A data scientists, mm-hmm. like um, being good with Git, GitHub, Bitbucket, or any of the version control is almost mandatory these days um, for data science roles. Um I do think that the cloud is, it's not, I would say it's super popular now already, but in future, just almost everything will move to the cloud. So cloud skills are definitely going to be a thing um, if they're not already in whichever area people are that they're tuning in from. Um, Literally, we would do everything on the cloud. So everything from getting data, we would do it on the cloud because all the databases are on the cloud. 
and to we would just then grab the data from the database and dump it out somewhere on the cloud into storage, into Google storage or different things like that. And then we would spin up a virtual machine on the cloud and you load the data in from the storage area. So everything is quite seamless from that perspective. And um, a lot of people think that it's, there's two camps for people who are learning cloud stuff. It's either, oh, this is too difficult. I need like a DevOps guy to help me do everything. And then there's the other end where you kind of overestimate your ability to do some of the cloud stuff and you can end up costing your company a lot of money. So there's two different spectrums again. Um, but I think in general, the cloud is not too difficult to learn. It's one of those things which you just learn by doing. So the more you expose yourself to these different technologies, the faster you'll be able to pick it up. Um, and the beauty of it is you can learn for free or virtually for free. You can sign up for a Google account or, a, or an AWS account or a Microsoft Azure account, and you get like a few hundred dollars in credit. So you can kind of learn. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different online resources as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way, you kind of got lucky to, uh, you had to implement these things, right? And then uh, you also got lucky that there were people around who could help you to actually to, to learn the skills to master them. But I imagine there are many um, Taipei data analysts who do not, uh, whose work do not require that. So they are not pushed by the company to do these sort of things. And they also, like even if they are pushed to do these things, they do not have somebody to talk to. Mm. Uh, so th these are kind of two things uh, here in one. So maybe let's start with the first one. Um, so if company, so if your work doesn't, uh, like if you don't need to do these kind of things at, at work, how do you uh, develop these skills? Like how do you learn cloud? How do you learn Docker? If all, if, if all you do is SQL. This is a challenging one. Um, okay. <laughs> I feel that it, so all of these things can be learned, but the, the challenge is that it will be difficult without um, like a very strong incentive for you to learn mm -hmm. it. So maybe we can give some incentives here. Like I feel that in the future for the data scientists who know cloud computing versus those who don't, um, the ones with cloud computing will always get first, first round mm -hmm. preference even if the other person has more experience. And I think that's just going to be a thing. Unless you're very well-known and you have a very good reputation, um, cloud computing will be a thing. So I think it's when people are trying to push themselves to learn different things, having really good incentive devices or different ideas to force you to learn it at all costs is very good. Um, another good. Another good thing could be you essentially get rid of the lifeboats. So you tell your, tell your team, oh, we're moving to Docker. Mm -hmm. And then you Dockerize every single job that you have. That would be more extreme. You need, you need to have a lot of trust from your company to actually let you do that. Um, but it's possible as well. Um, the other things you could do could be take, take it little steps at a time. So at this stage, you might not be very familiar with Docker or with any other tools that you might want to progress in to become more of a type B data scientist. Uh, reach out to a few friends who are skilled in that area, um, who might be working in the same company so they understand the systems and ask them for advice. Um, I want to do this. How do I do it better? And then for sure, the engineers will have some idea about how to do things better because engineers usually do. But you'll definitely be able to learn something which you would not have been exposed to by talking to other people within the company. 
Um, and if there's no engineers in that company, you can ask a friend or reach out to someone on LinkedIn who might have some more experience on the thing and ask, solicit them for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I think, yeah, take things step by step. There's, n- there's not always a need to cut the lifeboats and aim for, the, aim for the moon all the time, but it's good to have that mindset as well and to always be improving. I think that's, that's more important than aiming for perfection from the beginning. And uh, I, I think you kind of answered the second uh, uh, the second part of that question, like how to how to get people to help you. Like oh, there is no mm-hmm. one in the company. Like you reach out to to people, and there, there is a question like how do I find a mentor? So this is the this is not an answer, right? So you can reach out to people mm. to, on LinkedIn, perhaps different communities, uh, right? And uh, maybe other teams in the company can also be an option. And then you also mentioned one thing, like if you at work, all you do is SQL, you can try to challenge the status quo, like just approach your management and say, hey, like this is how companies are doing this right now. Please let me give, uh, like, uh, let me spend some time and try to uh, dockerize the the, the thing we have, right? And then uh, this is how you learn, right? But Mm. uh, like, management have to has to have a lot of trust in you to let mm. you do this you have to almost like you have to do the time to build up the trust and your reputation for the business to actually trust you um for one of one really great example that i've got from uh one of the people that i've been mentoring on on our slack group um essentially he's been working in a role which was advertised as like a an analytics role like a statistical analyst role but he was doing ended up doing a lot of reporting work in excel which is not great. Um, but he showed some of his managers and his bosses, oh, I've been learning this stuff in the background. He was learning how to do machine learning to predict churn, predict laps, predict different things like that. So he recommended or he said to his management, oh, um, we have a lot of data about our customers. I might be able to figure out who are the customers who might not be buying with us again. And I, I, we can try different things, but I'm not sure if it will work. But if you give me a little bit of time, we can see what happens. And simply because he asked and he was very open about his aspirations to apply more um, techniques, which are com- very common in the business world, they let him try it and the project was very successful. Mm-hmm. So I think different things like that, people just need to be curious, take the initiative and almost own, like put, put more of their skin on the line. There's like skin in the game or whatever it is, like try to... If there's strong incentives for you to do something, you'll more likely you're more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, so you mentioned persuasion. So this is one of the communication skills, and we talked about communication a bit. That this is a very important part for the type A data scientist. And also there are questions in chat about data storytelling skills, uh, uh, communication in general. And I think it kind of brings us to the type C data scientist. I think for the type C, these skills are more important than for others. So maybe we can talk about this role a bit more. Mm, so definitely. Is the, who is the, the type C data scientist? What do they do? So I've, I've been lucky enough to work with a few type Cs where, um, okay, let me rephrase that a little bit. So type C stands for consultant. So they're essentially, when people think of the data scientist as being like, um, In the past, it used to be the data scientist was the intersection of the programmer, the mathematician, 
and the business domain expert. So this type C is essentially that person in the middle, mm-hmm. but with very strong consulting skills. So originally when I was working in data science, the, the team that I was working in, we were actually part of an internal consultancy model. So we would go out and try and win projects with different parts of the business. And then we would work on the projects, deliver them value, show them how much value we delivered. And then we would get another project with a different part of the business. Uh, with a different part of the bank because of the results that we already received. So it was essentially like a traditional consultancy where they do exactly the same thing. They're very heavy in sales. They have people working and delivering the thing. And then they always have really strong stakeholder engagement and communication to make sure that the business, the business problems are being solved adequately with the right solutions. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, the type C is essentially, um, the ideal type C data scientist would have been an analyst, would have also been a builder because they'll be able to know what technical decisions and trade-offs they have to make. And also they'll usually type C is either a people leader or a project manager, or they're just very, very good at persuading and talking to business. So, and usually if you're, if you're a strong talker, you're more likely to be a, a people leader anyway. So it all kind of, kind of ties in. So usually these type C data scientists, they'll be your, like your general manager of data science or your head of data science, um, chief data scientist. Um, but however, I feel that there's, there's a precautionary tale around the type C data scientist as well, because it's very, very rare for someone to actually have gone through the type A experience and the type B experience and then they want to go in and lead projects and lead teams. It's a very, very rare skill set. Not many people want to do all of those things. So there's always incentive for people to make it look like they want to do those things. So probably Alexi's smiling because um, <laughs> there are many, I wouldn't, there's like type C, let's call it charlatan <laughs> data scientists. <laughs> But essentially, it's, it would be like a senior leader who doesn't have a lot of the technical experience, but they might be very good with the business. They might be very good at making decisions, but they won't have all the experience to actually make informed decisions themselves. They'll have to rely on their team a lot. So they um, don't have to have this kind of, or maybe like they have to have this kind of uh, skills to call themselves the data science consultants. But in general for them to be successful, they don't have to have these skills as long as there is somebody uh, of type A and type B data scientists around them who can say, hey, like this is not possible to do, for example, you're selling something that that is that will not uh, work and things like that, right? Definitely. Maybe my word charlatan is a bit too harsh. That's, <laughs> that's, maybe I'll offend a few too many people, but definitely it's it's more around like the the people leader, the business leader, um, who doesn't have the experience. So there's kind of like different types of type, like consultants as well. So you can think of them as the true consultants who, mm-hmm. who aren't working very deep in the data. And they're more talking about process to solve problems, trying to work closely with the stakeholders to figure out what the problems are and make sure that their, um, their concerns and issues are all addressed. So they're very, very important. Um, but all too often we see that there are some of these leaders who, who are not very technical and it's not a bad thing, but there are some people who pretend that they are very technical, but they're not very technical. So it just comes off as a bit charlatan mystic. Mm-hmm. 
but, but uh, yeah i imagine that uh, it also usually this is the kind of role that pays usually more than the other uh like you have more responsibility and then this also skill of uh, persuading people uh communication is also something uh rare among uh, technical people um so this is like a pretty rare person that's why uh like this uh um like the, the the pay is higher and this is well deserved um that's why many people think okay i probably want to go down that road i want to become uh like a manager or uh, yeah basically grow myself and do this kind of work more um but uh, it's uh, also again like a change in, in the mindset right so uh one day you're uh, type b like building things and then the second day when you become this type c like you rarely do hands-on work right so this is like quite a shift so do you know like maybe you have a recommendation for people who think they will like type c work but they are not sure like how can they safely test this and see if this is something for them or not mm. oh i haven't thought of this one actually it's really really interesting um i think for the for the people who are looking to who who are starting right now so you're not sure whether you want to be a type A an analyst a type B for a software developer/builder or a type C for a consultant um usually let's say you're coming in as a junior so you don't have too much work experience you haven't had too much exposure to technical um data analysis or different things like that i usually recommend them to start off as either an analyst or a builder depending on their background So if you have software development skills, definitely try and start off as a builder because you are you're already a few steps ahead on the ladder. Um if you did an analytics degree or anything which has a lot of analysis or excel or tableau or anything like that, start off as an analyst because that's where your strengths are. So those two are fine, but when people start thinking about okay, I'm in it to reach the top, um I want to manage business, I want to um be the team leader, I want to manage people, I want to make the big project decisions. So usually if that's your mindset when you're starting, you it's not ideal <laughs> because you for most people when they when when they get to that level, they usually have a ton of experience within the deep technical realms or they have a lot of experience coming in from the side as well. So let's say I've seen I've worked with really really successful like general managers of data science and head of data science or whatever who where they've come in from a non-traditional data science background they might have done something within the data space like a head of insurance modeling or they were working in campaign marketing or different things like that so they were very very switched on commercially so for a few of our viewers where they're probably coming in from um that sort of background as well so they've got quite a few years of experience in a non-related or either a non-related or a semi-related field to data science and they're wanting to kind of move into the space um the thing that's most important for the consultant the type c data scientist will be a commercial mindset so that commercial acumen being able to make decisions people leadership being able to talk to businesses convince convince leaders to do something um as well as the storytelling piece and the all of those persuasion components they're really really important um but i think for anyone who's starting off and you want to end up becoming a type c um definitely it's a really great goal to have 
but the you really want to try and figure out in the short to midterm what you want to focus on because it's going to be very difficult if you only focus on doing the people skills and the project management and everything to get to the head of data science role. Like it's just not going to happen mm-hmm. um, unless you move around and be a little bit dodgy. It might happen. <laughs> okay. Or a bit of luck also will not hurt. A bit of luck also, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as I understood, like a good background for the type C uh, data scientist is like they either have to be like to have experience working as a type A or type B, or maybe they try to do both. And this is ideal when they become type C. Um, other, other, uh, um, how to say, like, uh, is there a, a different type of background that is suitable for this role? For example, product managers, right? Because they already have the skills. They can, they are good communicators. They can tell stories, but they don't necessarily have this uh, exposure to machine learning. Like can they become a good type C consult- uh, data scientist? So in the past, I've worked in teams where there was a formal role called data science product manager. Mm-hmm. So that would essentially be the product manager for data science products or mm-hmm. data science projects um, where there would be machine learning, data analytics, maybe some reporting or different things, but they would have that program lead would be this product owner. So in some sense, it would be it's quite a natural transition. So let's say you're working in a, in a startup, for example, you're dealing something where it's like a, or maybe a front end facing thing where you're a product manager, product owner, and you have to, you manage a lot of the different processes that are going on with the technical teams, but you might not understand what they're doing with the code. Um, in the same way, these data science product managers usually have the same sort of relationship with their teams as well. Um, and it's almost the, the people who I've seen in that role are almost transplanted out from those teams with traditional product managers. And they're told, okay, manage this data product thing and learn on the fly. So it's definitely possible. Um, whether you would call them a type C data scientist or not, that would be another point of contention. Um, I feel that for the people who, who do come from that product management background, and then they start learning some of the data science skills, and they are actually very passionate about learning um, like how to, how to use Git or how to use Docker, how to, how to analyze data and visualize in R or different things like that, then I think that's fine. Like for me, it's okay. Um, but for a lot of, I find that for a lot of people moving into that sort of space, it's just not very time efficient for them to learn those other things because they won't be adding as much value as they, if they just focused on their role as like a delivery manager. So it really depends on the amount of flexibility you get in different companies, um, whether they give you that opportunity or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do it think helps. it's very useful to learn. Yeah. Like data is the future, right? Yeah, and it helps uh, to speak the same language with data scientists and engineers, right? If they do that. And uh, the, so apart from these three roles we talked about, analyst, uh, builder, consultant, um, like to build a successful product, we need to, to have other people in the team. So we already talked about the product manager. Uh, and then in chat, uh, people mention uh, uh, a data engineer. And this is, uh, by the way, also an interesting question about the data engineer. Uh, but yeah, so first maybe, um, so who else do we need to have on the team in addition to a product manager, these three types uh, of data scientists and uh, 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 data engineer? else do we need? Mm. 
So if we think of like, let's try and build up like the perfect data science team to deliver something into production. So in the past, I used to think of data scientists as kind of like a SWAT team. Like you just drop them into a business problem. They figure out what the hell is going on. And then they tell the business what to do. And then they make it happen as well. And then eventually they, yeah, it would be perfect. (laughs) It's like the perfect business team. So if we were to develop that sort of team, we would definitely have, let's start with the engagement first. So you'd have at least one consultant type um, or they could be a product manager, but they're very heavy on the engagement with the stakeholders. So they would be like the team lead, essentially leading the project, leading the team, interacting with the business. So at least one person there. They usually, so in the past, I've seen teams where one person is a business lead. So they'll be very hands-on with the business, very strong commercially. They'll have a counterpart, which is the tech lead. So very similar um, with software engineering teams as well. So you would have a tech lead who's also very good at the business, but very, very good at the engineering. So you would ideally have a tech lead who's very, very good at the data science. Doesn't necessarily have to be very good with the engineering or the DevOps or anything like that, but they'll be able to talk to those different teams. So you need a connector lead person. So those two are critical. The next two would probably be, um, ideally you'd have a domain expert So whether that's a business analyst or a data analyst that works directly in the team and they'll be talking with the business because most of the time when you're working on a data project, your team won't be familiar with the data that you need to work with. You need to go out and find out what's going on. You need to actually physically get it from some silo somewhere in the business as well. So you need these people who are really, really strong at SQL, strong with communication, um, strong with exploration skills to figure out what's going on, read documentation to find out when the data was built, why it was built, what are the processes, what are the ETL stages, all of those Provided things. we have all that, right? All this yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to like go in and figure out what's going on from the from the code, unless they're they're not doing it with code. They'll be... <laughs> <laughs> Could you need on. at least yeah. So you need at least so how how are we going? So one one business lead, one tech tech lead, one let's call it like a data lead. So they're very very good. Mm-hmm. Like they probably work like C, as a data example. engineer. Or... It would be more like a, like a data engineer who would be more business side. Mm-hmm. So a data engineer here, like because there is a question, maybe we can touch on that a bit. Oh, yeah. So data engineer does not fit into, into any of these letters. So data engineer is not A, B, or C, right? So this I is think something... data engineer would be closest to a B. Mm-hmm. So I've actually worked with a, a lot of data scientists who used to be engineers. And they were very firmly in the type B type data scientist because that's where their background was. Um, but they were just, they were amazing because they were very, very smart. If you told them like, oh, you need to apply this mathematical theory or statistical theory to the problem, they'll just read the source code and be able to implement it almost like for like straight away. Um, so definitely data engineers as data scientists, mm-hmm. very good, very good, very good fit. <laughs> Okay, so type B, right? Yeah, type Just, B. Uh, uh, Irena answered that uh, that uh, she thinks that data engineer is type B, so she's correct. Mm, correct, hundred okay. <laughs> percent. Um, so we have a team lead. Oh, right? Back to our team. So we yes. have yeah, team lead. Um, oh, like so the team lead, the tech lead, a data lead. Mm-hmm. So they may or may not be a data engineer, or a data mm-hmm. analyst, or it doesn't really matter. But they're like the domain expert. 
then you would have your technical data science team. So you would ideally have at least one analyst type. So they'd be out trying to explore different things. They have a much more strong focus on exploring, but they would work hand in hand, hand, in hand with the type B, where the type B will be setting up the infrastructure for them, um, telling them, okay, if you're going to explore like this, let me figure out what data you need and we'll try and fit it into this thing. So then you can start working in Docker from day one or something like that, the, the ideal team. So I would say if you have two really strong um, type A and type B data scientists, you should be sweet. Um, ideally, you'd have more people learning from them as well. So if they were your senior people, you'd have maybe one or two people underneath them um, to shadow them and learn. But I think that should be almost enough for like the leanest team that you'd want to try and solve a lot of problems. Maybe you have one more person who is, let's call them like a type A, but is doing more of a data analytics function. So once the once the data scientists have been building their models and exploring their models and using Docker to do all these things at scale, then the results would pop out. And ideally they would be analyzing the results with another data scientist who's very focused on doing the measurement piece. Because I think measurement is the thing that's always left out when we deliver projects, um, like measurement of not just the value of what we're doing, but how much time are we saving? Um, are we solving the problem properly? What was the previous rate that the problem was being solved? Um, how much uplift are we getting? And what is the cost? Um, so like business metrics profit. based. Yeah, yeah business metrics based, but being able to translate all of the work that the data science team is doing into time savings and cost savings. Mm -hmm to show business that uh, these people are not just reading papers and, uh, mm. you know, having fun, but actually. So usually, yeah, I would say the type C data scientist would be perfect in that role as well. So maybe a lot of that measurement goes back to the actual tech lead who's leading these data science teams. Um, Cause they, they should be able to translate what their team is doing into dollars. Cause I think that's really important when we're, when we're thinking about enterprise data science. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, we have quite a few questions and I think now it's a good time to actually go through these questions and uh, answer them. Um, how anyone without any domain expertise can make a career in data science? Okay, so there are, let's call them like the, the whole career is being very good with the technical, but not having to dive deep into the, the domain expertise because they are consultants. So you could, you could be a very, very successful data scientist working in a consulting company where you're moving from one domain to another. So you essentially, you don't necessarily need to be very strong in a single domain, but you have to have skills where you can really skill up quickly in any domain. So that in itself is a very specialized skill. Mm -hmm. And when, when we think of like the big three, like McKinsey, Bain, BCG type, consultants, that's what they're doing. They get sent one day to a oil field, the next day they're going to a farm for doing agriculture. There's, it's very, very broad. And they've started doing data science within those spaces as well. So um, definitely can be done, but ideally you would be very strong in at least one domain because you have to demonstrate that you can learn about something quickly. And that's probably the best way to do it is to demonstrate your knowledge in one space. Mm -hmm. And that space can be technical space, like... Um, Usually, okay. oh, mm -mm. can be... I would say the domain expertise is more around the business domain. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think technical domains can also, you can also have specializations mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the domain expertise. Like let's say Alexi is very, very good at cloud computing and deep learning, deep learning on the cloud, maybe his specialization. Maybe. Um, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Um, that would also count as a specialization where you don't, you don't necessarily need a lot of domain expertise in any specific business domain, um, as long as you can translate the different problems into your technical specification. Okay. Or have a product manager or business analyst yes, who, can, who help can help you do that. Mm. Okay. And the next question, you probably get it quite often, uh, how to break into data science as a fresher, uh, and, uh, the, the, it's like two questions in one and where and how to apply. Okay. Um, we can tackle the applying one because I think that's an easier question to do. There are two schools of thought. You either apply for everywhere or you apply for nowhere. So let me, let me break this down. <laughs> if you apply for everywhere, you're essentially going through the public channels. You're going through LinkedIn, um, like the company website, maybe going through recruiters and different things like that. That's applying everywhere. The flip side of that is if you don't apply anywhere and you literally just only go through referral. So a lot of the, it's difficult both ways for people who are breaking into the industry. Um, there's just so much competition and the area is just so hot. So the, those are the two different ways that you can apply for these roles. Um, but no one really talks about how you get to the stage where you can start applying or even getting referrals. So the most important thing for anyone trying to break into data science would be to, you essentially need a project portfolio. Um, there's, there's no other way, essentially, not in this competition, not, not in this competitive environment. Mm -hmm. um, it's either if you're lucky, lucky enough and your company just happens to have an opening for a data scientist and you're in an adjacent team that you can just kind of, they give a chance to you to, to jump into that data science team like I did, you could be lucky. Very, very rare. Um, most of the time, people who are coming into data science, they'll, the data science roles, they want people with experience. Otherwise, they would, they would just hire someone else with experience. Mm -hmm. So the way to combat your lack of experience is to demonstrate what you can do. And one of the only ways that you can demonstrate what you can do in a quantifiable way is to have a project um, that's public that you can share with the recruiters, with people who might be in the hiring management team, or if you maybe you know someone in the company who knows other people. So this is where your network really comes in. But if you don't have a, a portfolio to show someone, um, it doesn't matter if you who you know because they can't they can't vouch for you essentially. So I would definitely say project portfolio it, with as best programming standards as possible. Um, try to avoid a lot of the common pitfalls that we see a lot in um, beginner projects. Um, I can talk about them a lot more, but we'll, we'll probably be here for a little while. I can while. imagine what you talk about, like this mm. uh, Jupyter notebook without comments where you need to execute cells mm. in some particular order, just yep. dumped where without any yep. comments, without readme, exactly. without requirements.txt file, things like that, right? Yeah, maybe we can do a future session where it's like we'll, yes. we'll point out like, <laughs> Common mistakes made by beginners on their on their projects or different things like Interesting. that. Yeah, and uh, just a follow up question from me personally: like, if you 
if somebody wants to break into data science, but they don't know, like, should they go with type A, should they go with type B? Uh, do you think it's easier to go into type A data science job than type B or like, or can we even mm. compare them? Can we even say that it's easier or this is just two separate things? I think that um, it will be down to luck and availability of what's available for you to apply for um, when you're looking for the first job. So like as bad as it sounds, ideally, if you had skills in both, you can apply for both, but not many people are going to have the time investment to actually learn all of the different skills for type A and type B without a lot of work experience. So usually what I'd recommend is to um, rely on your background. So if you have a software engineering background, it'll be much easier for you to actually make it through as a type, type B. But there's also like a, there's an alternative side to that as well. So let's say you're a software engineer, or you did computer science uh, in, as your undergrad. If you decided to go after an analyst role, you'll, you'll be more competitive because you're a strong programmer mm -hmm. compared to people who are not a strong programmer. So that's like another perspective to think about it. So, um, so it's not, I wouldn't say that there's a black and white, you should do this or you should do that, but just try and think, think strategically of how you can use your skills to best compete in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it's just how the environment is just so competitive and everyone is looking for jobs here. So, but for, let's say you're, you're an analyst type and you're hearing this and you're like, oh, damn, I'm not very good at programming. How can I skill up in programming so I can compete against these other people? So that's like the catch 22. So to be able to have a very strong programming background and develop it quickly, uh, usually those things don't go, don't go hand in hand. It takes a few, like takes a lot of time to become a good developer. Um, of course, you can pick up really strong fundamentals and start with really good practices, which always helps. Um, but Time on the keyboard is time on the keyboard. Um, someone with two or three years more technical experience will always have stronger skills from the beginning compared to someone without any. So it's just the play with the, the with the cards that you're dealt essentially. But you it, you shouldn't feel discouraged about that. So when we think of the analytics teams and the other things like that, a lot of people want to go straight into a Type A data science role. These type A data science roles are actually more challenging than the type B ones because usually I would say you're, you're expected to live to deliver value sooner. Uh -huh. So let's say you're, you're the first data scientist within a company. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be a type B data scientist usually because they won't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So you'll be tasked with, okay, figure out why our sales are down. We have no idea why sales are down and you've, you've got three weeks to do it. Something mm -hmm. like that, something crazy. So a lot of the, a lot of the time when you're doing exploration, usually uh, the best type A data scientists are more senior. They they would have had a few more years of experience working with data, um, and their their intuition around the the data and the business is usually higher. So I think for people when they're starting off, and you're working in an analyst, or you're you come from an analytics background or not a software engineering background, a data analyst role is not a bad option because you can actually skill up in a lot of the things which we traditionally think of as data science skills. You don't need to learn them on the job. You can learn them on Kaggle through online courses, through different things like that. The most important thing when you're starting off your career is 
being close to the data. So the more you can use data using SQL, Tableau, Excel, doesn't really matter. The more time you spend with data, the better. So I think a lot of people really feel stressed about that. Like they, oh, if I, if I don't get a data scientist role, I don't know what I'm going to do sort of thing. Like when they're starting their career, um, we shouldn't think like that. I, I think if I, if I thought like that when I started my career, I'd probably still be waiting for my first role. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are probably thinking the same thing too. Yeah. So like uh, short answer, it depends. Depends on your background, mm-hmm. right? The long answer is uh, what you just gave. <laughs> it would be like, depends on your, on your background, the, your strategy of how you uh-huh. want to do it. Um, and I think it just depends on what your interest is, Mm -hmm. how dedicated you are to whatever you want to do. What is your opinion about boot camps? Like, is it possible to break into data science type A or type B data science uh, from a boot camp? These days, I think it's going to be rarer. Um, I would say that, so there's, there's definitely very high quality online training material out there. Um, like you've got the guys at Super Data Science who are doing some amazing stuff um, and they're trying to build out certifications which people can use to validate their skills and use it to get jobs. I think that's really awesome. Um, a lot of the boot camps, I would say, be careful. Um, of course, there's, they're always going to have really strong marketing. They'll tell you about their star pupils who landed a job in Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera, um, after they took a six-week boot camp with no coding experience before. Um, and I would, I would say that those things actually happen as well, but they are rare. Um, don't, I would not think that that's the average or the mean. They're probably outliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that it's it's very difficult to teach all of this stuff in six weeks. Like you can't really time box learning data science. It should be like a long, long journey. Like I'm, I've been learning data science for who knows how long, like five, six years or something. I still don't know what I'm doing. There's like, there's always something new to learn. Um, so boot camps are good if you have the time and the money and you're really willing to focus for that 12 weeks or whatever and work your ass off. Like, I think they're really, really valuable and they're good incentive devices to actually do that. Um, when you do it, do a lot of research, reach out to people who have taken those boot camps to get their feedback, um, find out how they, how they were doing, if they have alumni that you can reach out to and learn a bit more. Um, like definitely do as much research as you can and don't dive into something um, in the spur of the moment and end up paying too much for something that you in the end might regret. So just do, do as much research as you can. I think it's a perfect segue to talk about your course because you mentioned that uh, like it's not like it took you a couple of years to learn that uh, what you know. So it's not possible to put it uh, like to cram everything into six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever. Um, yet you are uh, like I, I don't want to say you're trying to 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 do this, but uh, like you also see a problem there with uh, bootcamps, with education, with all these amounts of information that we have around. So you decided that you want to create a course. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about the course. So what the course is, for which type of the data scientist it is, uh, and uh, things like that. Definitely. So I recently launched the Data with Danny virtual data apprenticeship program. So 
and as part of that, the, the first part of that program is my serious SQL course, um, where I'm trying to essentially train everyone in all of the different skills that I've picked up over the past few years working in SQL. Um, and so my vision for the online course business was, it was actually really interesting because when I started doing all of these things, I actually didn't want to sell a course at all because I thought that it was, there were ethical issues with charging people money for something which they can learn for free. Um, like would people even pay for something that I'm creating or different things like that? Like all the regular doubts that people have also. Um, but in the end, I, I figured that the way that I learned my skills was directly through my mentors. It wasn't learning directly from the documentation or um, working on, of course, working on learning from the documentation and working on challenging projects, of course that helped. But the most important thing was actually to work really closely with a mentor. And this mentor, they might've been an expert in certain areas, but they also had things that they didn't know themselves as well. So it was kind of like a learning journey between the both of us that when we were working together. So in the same way, I wanted to create that same sort of learning experience for not just for data scientists, but for anyone who's starting their data journey. So my belief is that, so SQL is going to be a huge thing for when people are going to be accessing data. Um, and then the next few things I wanted to teach was more around data visualization, data manipulation, forecasting, time series, machine learning, all of these things. But the first thing that I chose was to do SQL because I think that's how, that was personally how I learned how to do a lot of the data problem solving was by using SQL only. I felt that having strong SQL skills is very important just to understand data. Like it's very, it's almost like the natural language of how, how we use data. doesn't matter what language, like usually we translate it back to some sort of SQL concept as well. But yeah, I've, I just launched my serious SQL course. The, it's in live beta now. So parts of it are still undone. I need to work really hard to actually finish them on time for the real launch. Um, but I've, I had a wait list before and um, I was, I've also launched it on Facebook. Oh no, not, not on Facebook, on LinkedIn and different places. And the price is currently $29 US. Um, there is a student price out there as well. So if you're, if you're a student and you're tuning in, please listen in uh, or please reach out to me on Slack or send me an email. Um, the email will be support at datawithdanny.com. Um, and I can share you directly the link. The, yep. Yes. Um, but the, yeah, the whole, the whole thing with the serious SQL courses is to essentially go through as many of the fundamental skills as possible, but also use those skills to solve as close to real life projects as possible based on my experience. So there'll be a lot of technical projects, lots of case studies, and the focus is more on how do we solve different problems? So there's a section which I'm going to be adding more and more interview questions and case studies and different things like that to really help people apply their skills to get the job or to start building their project portfolio as well. So if anyone's interested, please reach out to me. Yeah, datawithdanny.com, right? Datawithdanny.com. Yes. So there is a question that uh, that is quite related. 
what is the complete roadmap for becoming a data scientist? And I think if uh, somebody goes to your website, so like Data with Danny is not just this uh, SQL, one SQL course, there is like a learning path actually that starts with SQL as a fundamental skill, like you mentioned. Then you also mentioned data visualization, forecasting, machine learning. What else is there in this roadmap? Like what else people should learn to become a data scientist in your opinion? Mm. So if you're starting from, from fresh, from scratch, and you have never, oh, sorry, ate a bit too much food earlier. If, you, <laughs> if you've never used data before, I would rec recommend SQL first. It's a very natural way to learn how to use data. Then from there, I would say, start learning one of the popular programming languages for data science. So this could be R or Python. Um, so the vision for my next course is to essentially teach data visualization, a bit of statistics, forecasting, and data manipulation, but in both languages at the same time, because it's very, very useful to actually be able to do both. And I think the learning experience will be very positive. Um, it, will, it will be very challenging, of course, but hopefully we'll make it happen. Um, but I think for, for the, the more you know, the more opportunities it really opens up to you. So it's very good to know both. I would say those are the core skills. So it doesn't matter if you do R or Python or both, but you will definitely need to have strong data visualization, analysis skills, hopefully experimentation as well. So some like A-B testing, um, how do you define metrics, conversion metrics and different things like that. Um, and a little bit of forecasting, just enough to know what you need to do for 90% of most of the problems. I think that is the next step. That was my natural step as well when I was going through my journey, go working towards a data scientist role. And then after that, we'll probably focus on some of the more traditional machine learning algorithms. So your logistic regression, linear regression, decision trees, um, random forests, boosted trees, mm -hmm. before we start going into the deep learning. Because um, I think when we think of the machine learning algorithms and how we do the measurement and how do we do the optimization of all the different hyperparameters, it's much easier when we think of it in the traditional machine learning sense. And with some of these algorithms as well, like my plan is to actually get people to implement it using base Python, for example, or at least using NumPy's. Um, and I wanted to also cover maybe Julia as well. So I was hoping the machine learning thing will be in Python and Julia, ideally. Um, that'll be fun. And then after the traditional machine learning, I think that's when the deep learning comes in. So you might want to learn about um, all the base level of the deep learning, like your neural networks, all the different layers that you could use in your model, um, some of the new architecture that's coming out. So you've got like transformers are coming out, attention networks. There's a whole lot of stuff and it's always rapidly evolving. So probably by the time I get around to actually making that course, all of what I've said now is probably going to be made redundant. <laughs> but I think it'll be a very exciting space to work in. But I wouldn't recommend people dive into deep learning straight away from day one. Um, they're very useful, but once you start using them, you shouldn't see them as the hammer or you shouldn't be a hammer and everything looks like a nail sort of thing. Yes, thanks, Danny. So I think uh, we're almost uh, uh, okay. We'll, like because the next talk will start in five minutes, we should be right oh, enough. Oh, sure thing. 
Yes, uh, and you must be tired uh, talking for one oh, hour and a no, half. No, I'm fine. No, <laughs> you're used to this. But maybe a quick I can question talking. to you. Yeah, a quick question to you because uh, I think I know what you're going to answer. But um, in your opinion, how important it, it is for a data science position to have a master's degree or a PhD? Oh, so I would say different data science positions would have different requirements. So if you're, let's say you're working in machine learning research where you're developing a new algorithm or you're running some clinical tests or something with machine learning or something very research heavy, ideally you'd have a master's or a PhD because you have a lot of experience doing those sorts of things, um, reading a lot of math and just being able to handle a lot of complexity. Like that's what you're trained for. Um, so I would say anything which is in that realm. So if you think of like the machine learning engineering teams of Amazon, Facebook, Google, any of the big tech companies, that's why they usually prefer people with a master's or a PhD. Um, but for, for most other roles in the industry, they are not in that realm. Like you wouldn't have to design a whole new layer of a neural network or something mm -hmm. um, to, to solve some marketing problem or something like that. So I would say that it's not going to be required that you have a master's or a PhD, um, but it, of course, I think it definitely helps if you've got like a master's in computer science or a master's in mathematics or statistics or something, it'll definitely help. But for people who are making the decision of whether you do further education, um, it's a trade-off between how much time can you spend doing that education? Are you able to do it part-time, full-time, um, whilst you're working on a job as well? Like ideally you would, for me, like I I haven't got a master's or a PhD, but I've got a lot of industry experience working on lots of different problems. Um, most of my mentors actually have PhDs or masters, but they mm -hmm. told me instead of doing my further study, they just told me to go read the books that are on the, like the course recommended thing. You might learn more than actually doing the degree. Yeah. But I would say it's not recommend, like not, not always needed, but it, it would help for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. I think that is it. Thanks a lot for coming, for sharing uh, all your knowledge. And you have shared a lot during this half, uh, one hour and a half. That was uh, an insane amount of information. So thanks a lot. Uh, thanks everyone for watching and asking questions. We will now have a small break. And uh, uh, Danny, you are free to go. Thanks a lot again. No worries. And Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, thanks. And 